The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So continuing the topic that has been the theme for these mornings in the last few weeks, we've been exploring, beginning to explore the Four Noble Truths, and uh, in the last few weeks in particular looking at the First Noble Truth, the truth of Dukkha, the Four Noble Truths being kind of the Buddha's expression of his understanding of how freedom, happiness is possible in this life. And he framed it by exploring the question of how do we suffer? What are the ways that we struggle? What are the ways that there's stress in our lives? The word suffering is a big word for most of us in English, but the Pali word that that translates, dukkha, it covers a much broader range of experience than what we typically call suffering. It covers the subtlest unease through the the deepest kinds of distress and suffering that we experience. And so his, the Buddha's exploration and understanding through his practice, through his, his, um, his own exploration of his mind, was that this, there is this suffering, this reactivity in our, in our lives that we all experience. It's, it's kind of shot through our human experience. And he, he asked the question, is it possible to be free from this suffering? And in his exploration, he discovered that most of what we call suffering, how we mostly experience suffering, it is possible to be free of that. He did say that it's not possible to be free in this life from unpleasant experience or this kind of changing conditions of the world, not possible to control everything that happens around us. And yet the, the peace that we actually call suffering is more to do with our relationship with what's happening. It's more to do with how we relate to unpleasant experience or pleasant experience. It's more to do with how we relate to what's going on than the actual thing that's happening. And that, that can be a little hard to understand at first that you know, just taking something as simple as pain, for instance, as physical pain, that we usually think of the pain as being inherently suffering. That how can you not suffer when you've cut yourself with a knife or broken your leg or something? How can there not be suffering there? But what uh, the Buddha did discover is so much of what we actually call suffering is not found in the actual unpleasantness, but is rather in our relationship, our reactivity. The idea that this is, that I hate this, that I want it to go away, that this is a problem. All of that mental reactivity adds to the unpleasantness. And so we end up with this kind of multiplication uh, around uh, our struggles, that there's something happening in the world and there's a mental kind of squeezing and pushing and hating and uh, holding on. So these kind of varieties of greed and aversion, uh, hatred and uh, desire coming into play around what's going on. And that he discovered in his own experience that that reactivity is optional. 
that um, we can have a heart that is at ease, at peace, no matter what the conditions of the world are, no matter what the conditions uh, in in relationship to um, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, no matter what pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experiences are happening, the heart and mind can be at ease. Um, now this does, I, I, I've been saying this, I've been repeating myself every time I say this, but I do feel like it's important to keep saying this, that that being at ease with what's happening in the world. I mean, the question of, you know, injustice in the world, racism and homophobia and sexism and uh, all of the ways that we harm each other, the unjust and harmful ways that we relate to each other, you know, that, that those things are happening. To be at ease in the heart here when those things are happening doesn't mean that the heart says, oh, everything's okay. That's not what a peace of heart and ease of heart means in my understanding of, of what the Buddha was teaching. Because when the heart, like maybe we could call it rather than um, ease of heart, it's, not, it's, it's a heart that is unconstricted. It's a heart that's not tight. And that when the heart is not tight, when the heart is open, when the mind and heart are open and meeting the world as it is, there is a very natural movement to respond to injustice. There's a natural movement to respond to suffering, both internally and externally. This, this movement is the movement of compassion. And it is not a passive emotion. So that the, the peace of heart that the Buddha is talking about does not mean uh, inactivity. It does not mean um, indifference. In fact, in my uh, exploration, as the, as the greed and the aversion, as the constriction, as the push-pull around what's happening falls away, the heart actually feels more deeply the suffering and is much more inclined to act. And so this... Uh, this constriction of the heart is really the piece the Buddha was pointing to around what suffering is. And it's quite amazing as we touch into that, even for moments or from time to time, touch into a heart that is unconstricted, how much of what we habitually call suffering or tend to think of as suffering is released. It's a whole different relationship to the world. And so this constriction of heart is what can be released. And so the, the First Noble Truth is talking about this. What is dukkha? What is this constriction of heart? What is, how does it happen? The Second Noble Truth talks more about how it happens. How does it come to be? The, the truth that uh, craving, kind of this basically wanting things to be uh, another way, but with that constriction around it, that, that the heart is not responsive, it's more reactive. And so that, that reactivity is the birth of the suffering. When we are reactive in that way, that is the suffering. That's the second noble truth. And then the, the third noble truth points that there is the possibility for freedom from that reactivity, freedom from that craving. And um, the fourth noble truth talks about 
the possibility for how to find our way, each of us personally, find our way to the ending of suffering, to uh, practice the, the tools of the Eightfold Path, wise speech, wise action, wise, wise view, wise understanding, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration, tools that we explore to uh, deepen our understanding of dukkha. And so this, uh, this understanding of dukkha, this really is the encouragement of the first noble truth, to understand what this dukkha is, to begin to get the, the sense of the, the flavor of what the Buddha was pointing to around what dukkha is, what suffering is, that it's, it's not the things that are happening in the world that are this dukkha that can be released, but rather is this reactivity. And so different, there are different levels perhaps of this dukkha, different kinds of this reactivity. And over the last few weeks, we've been exploring um, one teaching around these, the, the, this term dukkha, different ways it happens. Um, the, there's a, a teaching that talks about three kinds of dukkha, the dukkha of pain, the dukkha of unpleasant experience, basically. This is the, usually the most obvious kind of dukkha, the kind of dukkha that comes with reacting to difficulty, pain, uh, you know, so that there's that, that aversion, the hatred. Um, so that's the, the most obvious form of dukkha. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And then the dukkha of change, uh, the dukkha that comes, often it's this in the, in the, um, the commentaries around the texts, the the dukkha of change is pointed to, kind of connected to pleasant experience. So the dukkha of pain is talked about as being in relationship to unpleasant experience, all forms of unpleasant experience from the subtlest to the most obvious, and what our relationship is to that. The dukkha of change is pointing to how in pleasant experience there is kind of a, a tension that can happen. Even in pleasant experience, there's, there's, there's kind of the inherent uh, unreliability of pleasant experience and that if we are kind of holding on to a pleasant experience or believing, oh, I've constructed the world to be the way I want it to be and got to keep it this way right now, you know, this is, so we're trying to, we're, we're, we're kind of trying to keep shoring it up, keep holding it together, that, 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 that itself is a kind of suffering, the kind of holding to that. It means that we can't be at ease with the fact of change. If we're essentially kind of resisting the fact of change by trying to keep, keep a particular configuration going. And also within, um, pleasant experience is the uh, potentially sometimes there is a kind of an, uh, an inner uh, understanding of the impermanent nature of this and there, there can be a little bit of fear or a little bit of dread about well what how am I going to be when this changes you know and so there's this reactivity to that kind of dread and fear around oh I've got things the way that I want them now but oh, I know it's going to fall apart and how do I not have it fall apart so this is the terrain of the second kind of dukkha the dukkha of change and we talked about that last time so this time I wanted to talk about the third kind 
go into this in a little more depth. And this, this is um, sometimes called the dukkha of existence. The Pali is Sankara dukkha, um, which literally means something like the suffering of formations, the suffering of, the, of conditionality, what this kind of points to. And this, to me, this, um, this really points to some of the way that dukkha can get really, really subtle. Really kind of almost underground. So the suffering of um, formation is, you know, sometimes we can um, connect into this um, in terms of neutral experience. The commentaries do point to this being kind of a, a suffering that can be highlighted around neutral experience. And often we don't even notice neutral experience. But what is our relationship to neutral experience? You know, we don't think it's important, tend to not just, just ignore it. Um, and often when we have a period of, of neutral experience, we go looking for something else, like Oh, it's just kind of boring. So we have a relationship to neutral that it's boring, that it's not meaningful somehow, or um, that there's something better to be had. And so we may go off either in search, paradoxically, we may go off either in search of something pleasant, or we might even go off in search of something unpleasant. This can be very interesting to see. Um, Sometimes we can, in a kind of a neutral space, just kind of rest and see what kind of searching does the mind do in a neutral space. This very searching is a kind of a a pointing to this, uh, the dukkha uh, of neutrality. Because we we often don't um, like to rest just with neutral things. And so our mind goes off searching. What what is there that needs to be attended to? So instead of just being in a place of, oh, things are kind of neutral, hmm, this is... This is what neutral is like. The mind thinks, oh, this is neutral. There must be something else I need to be paying attention to. What is it? So we start looking. So there's a searching quality often, a kind of a restlessness of mind related to neutral experience. And this restlessness itself is a form of dukkha. Another relationship is... Um, is a dullness, sleepiness, that when it gets kind of neutral, we, we can shift into just like, oh, it's just kind of neutral. Oh, I guess I'm just oh, just kind of zone out or fall asleep. And that also is a subtle kind of dukkha, the sleepiness, because it's taking us away from right now. I mean, the, 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 the sleepiness itself can be kind of pleasant, or the zoning out itself, the, the mind state can be pleasant, but we are not connected. So we're in a state of disconnection from actual experience when the mind kind of zones out in a neutral space. And this is also a subtle kind of, of dukkha. So one thing that can be interesting, going back to the, the kind of searching, the restlessness, you can start to see how your mind works um, in a place, a neutral place perhaps. You know, this room's pretty neutral. You know, you come into this room and it's a lot of beige and uh, not a lot of color, and yeah, it's a kind of neutral room. So what is the mind's relationship to that? 
You know, when you walk into something that's pretty neutral, what happens? For me, what I discovered, what I tended to discover, at least initially, um, at this point, this point there's a different relationship, but um, when I first started practicing, when I went, when I ended up in kind of a neutral situation, the mind would gravitate towards the unpleasant. It would go looking for things that were unpleasant. It would, it would come in the room and it's like, oh, this is a kind of, hmm, oh, I don't like that. I don't like the way that's arranged. And hmm, that's a plastic flower. Hmm, I don't like that either. They should have real flowers here. And oh, uh, yeah, the door's open. I mean, why don't they close the door? And, you know, that's what the mind would do. It would gravitate to things that, that I didn't like. And so in a neutral place, my mind went to unpleasant. This was like shocking to me. It's like, why would my mind do this? Habit is why the mind does this. Whatever we kind of orient to, however we typically think of happiness as as happening for us, whatever underlying views we have about how happiness comes to be, those are what's going to come into play when things are neutral. And so in my mind... And the, the practice that I had explored much of my life was happiness comes when I get rid of unpleasant things. That this is, this, that, that if I can just get rid of all of these things that are a pain, then I'll be okay. And so that was what, what had been practiced. And so when the mind in a neutral place, it would orient towards the unpleasant. Now other people will orient towards the pleasant. You know, other people would come in and orient, oh, I like the way the the light comes in those windows and the kind of restful feeling, all this beige, you know, just the kind of... And and so that might be what somebody gravitates to. But again, that gravitation is coming from an underlying kind of belief that, oh, if I can find all these pleasant things and kind of bring them into my life, that's what will bring happiness. So the... There's more to explore in that terrain, but I'm going to move on a little bit. Um, so this, this notion of Sankara Dukkha, um, you know, it, 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 it encompasses the subtlest forms of suffering that we experience. Sometimes they're maybe, and, and subtle and pervasive sometimes. So the, the kind of pervasive existential anxiety, the angst of being human, that's kind of found in this terrain of Sankara Dukkha, the, the, the sense of what is life about anyway? You know, what is the meaning of life? And, you know, I, I, I do all these things and it's like there's just this endless repetition of getting up and eating and working and going home and going shopping and and it's just like it's just this tumble of having to take care of this body and and what is this about anyway what is the meaning here so this is a there is a kind of a subtle form of um kind of instability or a feeling of something's off here and a feeling of needing to figure something out needing to figure out what is the meaning what's going on here so this is also this kind of feeling like something's off, just the subtlest kind of feeling like something is off, is a form of dukkha. 
this kind of sankara dukkha. In in um, certain states of meditation, we begin to really um, uh, touch into a level of suffering that just comes from being in a body and being impinged on. It's like in the guided meditation earlier, I was, I was pointing to how we don't have to try to hear. It's like when awareness is there, hearing happens. So there's this contact. There's the sound waves come and touch the ear and there's contact. And we can't stop that contact. Like we can't stop the contact of the of of the the sitting on the chair while we're sitting. The only way we can stop that contact is by standing up. And then there's some other contact that happens, and so there's just this tumble of contact, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and and things going on in the mind. And we could say that that is what our human life is: is just an endless series of six different kinds of contact. What happens is that we tend to like certain kinds of contact more than other kinds of contact, and so we, we prefer those. When we come into the, the recognition that in some sense, at some level, not at the ordinary level of our lives, but at a, at a kind of more um, fundamental level, all of those contacts are just contacts and they are simply appearing and disappearing. That there is this just kind of changing, ever-changing contacts just impinging on our experience. At a certain place or a certain kind of level of meditation, that is felt as very um, uh, oppressive. <laughs> you know, and, and, and it's, it's a real kind of pointing to this existential kind of anxiety. But that oppressive feeling around just being impinged on, sometimes meditating with that kind of quality, it's like you're in a room with screaming teenagers and crying babies, and it's like you're so overwhelmed with with sense impressions. It just feels exhausting, oppressive, to be contacted by so much sense experience. I was at Spirit Rock at one point, on on a month-long retreat, the first time I think I really consciously touched into this kind of, this kind of oppressive suffering. Uh, Yeah, there's, there's um, lots of sounds, nature sounds happening at Spirit Rock. And at a certain time of the year, the frogs are really um, active. And um, I think probably at some point in the retreat, I was appreciating the sound of the frogs and, you know, listening to them and kind of delighting in the nature. And, and yet at some point, the, the, the mi- it's like the mind got so open, it was so receptive, it was experiencing so much. It heard the sound of a frog and it was like fingernails on a chalkboard. It was like the whole, the whole body reverberated with that sound of the frog. Every cell felt like it was being touched by that sound. It was like overwhelming. And then another frog and another frog. And I just almost melted down. It was so overwhelming. So this is, this is pointing to the, um, the kind of 
this is our life that we are being impinged on by so much. And yet the relationship to that and what we do come to explore in meditation as we touch into that oppressive kind of feeling is that that oppressiveness itself is a relationship. The feeling of being oppressed, the feeling that it's not okay to just be in a place where I'm impinged like this. The relationship to neutral also. This is a relationship. This is a form of reactivity that can be released, that, that, that is optional. And so to some extent with the Sankara dukkha, with the, the dukkha of existence, you know, this, this kind of dukkha underlays the other kinds of dukkha. It, it, the, this kind of dukkha, the dukkha of just being impinged on, um, is is uh, kind of the deepest form that gives rise to the dukkha of change and the dukkha of pain. Because our relationship, it's it's all in our relationship, that the dukkha of um, uh, being impinged on. Um, the reactivity of that, they're all intertwined. The reactivity of that often has us trying to seek for something pleasant that we can cling to. And then, then that is, is impermanent. It changes. And then we're, we suffer. We have an unpleasant experience that results and we react to that. And so all forms of resistance to the way things are is a form of dukkha. And we can also say another, another way to explore or think about this kind of dukkha, the, the dukkha of formations, the Sankara dukkha, is at a very fundamental level, uh, not so much in terms of our reactivity to uh, the impingement, but just the nature of experience. You know, experience itself is, we could call it, unreliable. Because it's impermanent. At one point the Buddha talked about that. All formations, he said, uh, anicca vata sankara. Anicca impermanent is the word for impermanent. Anicca vata. Actually, I love this word because it, it, uh, it conveys an emotional relationship to this truth that's being expressed. So impermanent Alas, that word wata means alas. Impermanent alas, alas, are conditioned experiences. All experiences that we have, every single experience in our entire lives is conditioned. This is this word sankara that uh, is connected to this kind of dukkha, sankara dukkha. So the, the fact that all experience, every experience that we have is a conditioned experience. Because they are impermanent, they are not reliable. They are not reliable as a place where I can say, okay, yep, this bell. This bell is what I'm going to rely on for my happiness. I really like this bell and I'm going to keep this bell and I'm going to make sure nobody takes this bell. The bell is impermanent um, you know, we, I mean, if this bell were sitting on the slopes of Mount Kilauea, it might now be a puddle. 
because of the lava, you know, the lava flowing down the mountain. So, you know, it's impermanent. We 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 can we can control it for a little little while, but if we are relying on something, anything, any experience, any uncondition any conditional experience, any conditioned experience as being some place where we are kind of hanging our hat and saying that's where I'm going to be happy. That inevitably leads to suffering because of change. And so this is another way to, to explore or think about this kind of dukkha, the sankara dukkha, that it is almost the inherent nature of experience to be unreliable. It is the inherent nature of experience to be unreliable. And that word, unreliable, uh, in Pali is translated as dukkha. And so, to some extent, even though we may not be experiencing reactivity, I mean, this is, this is, um, this is something that um, the Buddha points to in terms of uh, the notion or the possibility of freedom, the, the possibility of non-reactivity doesn't mean that we land in some place where there's not change in our, in our human experience. He pointed to for awakened beings, for people who have freed their minds from reactivity, they continue to experience pleasant, unpleasant, neutral experience, this changing nature of experience. And so the, the, the experience of things being unreliable does not inherently, it is inherent in all experience, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to have reactivity over it. And so while the, the truth of anicca vata sankara, all conditioned things are impermanent, therefore all conditioned things are unreliable, doesn't mean that we have to have reactivity over that. And so looking at what we add you know what 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 we add where is the reactivity that's that's kind of the question for us in our exploration of dukkha is what are we reacting to so this can be this can be a huge exploration i want to stop here for a minute cuz that could be the whole talk next week um and just check in and see are there any comments or questions based on what i've i've already said yeah so use the use the mics Yes, alas, yeah. So kind of that that emotional tone of, oh, yeah. And, and, and even the Buddha said that, alas. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it, it's, does, it's like, would it be that there were some place to land? <laughs> but there's not. So there's that, that kind of uh, emotional recognition of the, Poignancy, we could call it the poignancy of the truth of impermanence. Yeah. What's sankara? Sankara is the Pali word for formation. 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 Um, And it's used in a number of different ways. Um, Mostly, mostly it means, well, there's, there's, there's two key ways that 
that I explore this. One, the, one of the key ways is that it refers to all of, all of our conditioned experience. I'm actually, I'm going to say three ways. It refers to all of our conditioned experience. Everything that we experience, every sight, every sound, every smell, every taste, every touch, every feeling, every thought that arises in the mind is a conditioned arising. It, it, it arises in dependence. First of all, they arise in dependence on the body. Our experience wouldn't be happening if we were dead. I mean, so we are experiencing things in dependence on the body. If something happened to our eyes, if we became blind, we would no longer experience sight in that way. And so the, the, everything is conditioned. And then there's other forms of conditioning. So there's the simple physical kind of conditioning of, of contact is one of the key conditioning things, like you know the touch here that I'm experiencing, the sensation here is conditioned on this contact of touching the, the table. But beyond that, there's kind of deeper weavings of conditioning. Um, so every thought, for instance, everything that arises in our mind is also conditioned. And we can begin to see that there's like really deep layers of conditioning there. Layers that go back to our childhood. So, you know, we might, we might notice um, you know, there's a contact, a sound. A sound arises. And, uh, you know, based on that sound, my mind, that there, was, there was another thing that arose there, was a perception uh, an idea of what it was. My my mind kind of thought that was probably a motorcycle. And so there, okay, so there's the idea of a motorcycle in my mind. I don't know it was a motorcycle, but I thought it was a motorcycle. And then there's all kinds of other things based on my conditioning, relationships with motorcycles that come into being in that moment. And then potentially um, a memory of a friend who was participating, a, a friend of mine who did a motocross racing and got injured at one point. Oh, that pops in, having heard the sound of the motorcycle. All of this is conditioned. It's, it's not like a random, anything that arises in our mind is not random. And so it, it comes to be on the basis of previous experience and how we are in this present moment. So that's one form of sankara, sankara, and my understanding of the sankara dukkha is that it's referring to that kind of sankara. That all experience has that kind of unreliability because it's conditioned. There's nothing, no way that we can. I mean, we look at our mind even for a little while in meditation. You know, we sit down in meditation and we explore the possibility of being present, and what do we see? That, you know, maybe we can be present for a few seconds, and then we hear a sound, and we start thinking about motorcycles. And it's like, this is conditioned. The, the, the um, capacity for our mind to be trained to stay present is conditioned. So all of our mental experience, all of our physical experience is conditioned, and there's no no way to come up with a, a reliable experience that will last for the duration of our being that uh, is a place where we can say, yeah, that, that'll do it right there. And yet what seems to happen um, is that we have the capacity, an interesting capacity, one of our mental formations, uh, perception, or one of, our, one of the sankharas, it's use the word mental formation in a different way now. Um, 
one of our, uh, uh, the, the things that arises in our mind, perception, kind of has this possibility of creating the illusion of stability. So, uh, we can, I'm looking out in this room, for instance, it, in my perception, I'm seeing, you know, a room of about 15 people, most of you sitting relatively still for this whole time. And, you know, as I turn my head, you know, you're not moving and I'm, I'm experiencing kind of the room be staying the way it is. But that's perception at work that's kind of creating that sense of stability in my experience. Because the actual experience is that I'm turning my head and that I'm getting a different slice of vision. And if, if my mind didn't do this stabilizing, it's almost like the mind has this camera stabilization thing going. You know, if my mind didn't do this stabilizing, it would be a very jittery picture. And so that, that this is a function. It's a, it's, a, it's a nice thing of our minds that it does this stabilization. But that is a mental function that stabilizes experience. And that mental function of stabilizing experience often is where we think we can land. It's like, oh, okay, this can come into being and this can stay put. And yet what is really staying put is the idea, a concept. So, so this, is, this is one part of formation is that is the all experience is, is, um, is formation. Um, Another, uh, another definition of formation has more to do with our mental uh, activity. Um, that there's a, a, tor- a term, um, volitional formations, that has to do with our... Um, uh, this is, comprises a lot of our mental experience, a lo- our, our emotions, our thoughts, our ideas, views. All of that is, is formation in our mind and uh, they are both um, so so sometimes when we talk about formations we're talking about our mental uh, activity basically our mental activity Um, and the mental activity so this loops back around to dukkha because the mental activity that part of our minds that's where the dukkha is created the dukkha our experience of dukkha uh, that kind of mental resistance, push-pull. That's a mental function. And so this, in this, this world of the mind um, resisting, wanting to hold on to, taking concepts to be firm, the, the views, the beliefs, the ideas that underlie our relationship to the world, um, all of that is where the suffering lies. And then the possibility is that, that that can be shifted to a different relationship. Um, so that's basically what Sankara is. And the, you know, I think too, I, I don't remember if I said this quite earlier, but um, you know, the, the relationship to the changing nature of experience so that the, the, what our beliefs are around this, the coming into being of experience, the, the, our, whether, you know, our relationship to this 
impinging kind of just sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. That's what's happening in our experience. Um, Our views about that, about what's meaningful, about how happiness can be found, those will inform or influence how we relate to all of this experience and then will in turn create either uh, a sense of reactivity or a sense of ease. And so the views that underlie our uh, relationship to experience is a huge source in some ways, I think, out of which uh, our experience of suffering comes. And those views are often not seen. So the view, for instance, that my view, like getting rid of unpleasant things is what's going to make me happy, that was not seen for a very long time until I started meditating. I didn't know that this was this underlying view, kind of a, a, a tendency, a way of relating to, to the world. And so the suffering that tended to be created in my experience tended to be of the aversive kind. Oh, there's an unpleasant thing. How do I get rid of that? Oh, push it away, hate it, figure out how to flee, figure out how to, how to annihilate it. There's, so there was that, that hatred and aversion component in the mind in terms of its underlying view that happiness comes from getting rid of unpleasant things. So for others, there's, there are different underlying views that... Um, kind of inform our relationship to what's happening. And the Buddha pointing to the possibility of, and so basically he said, we've got three basic fundamental underlying or three basic relationships to um, to our experience. And that is of greed that we, we like pleasant things, we want to hold on to them. It's of aversion. We don't like unpleasant things, want to get rid of it. And then uh, delusion, a kind of a, a misperception, a misunderstanding, sometimes a disconnection from experience. And underlying the movements of greed, aversion, and delusion are, are these views. Having what I want will make me happy. Getting rid of what I don't want will make me happy. And views associated with delusion often have to do with me. I am. I need. I want. I have to fix. I have to change. So the, the, the views underlying our, uh, our suffering, and this, is, this is kind of an interesting place to explore. We'll I'll probably talk about that more in a, in a, in a few weeks. So other, other comments or, or questions? Yeah. I don't know if this is a view or or what, but in impermanence, seeing the reality of impermanence, seeing the reality, the reality of impermanence, of impermanence. Uh-huh. Um, is it possible to have a sense of wonder about that? Like, mm-hmm. that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> that that creation just keeps. Keeps happening. Keeps happening. Yes. Rebirth and die and rebirth and die. And then related to that is that no matter... Yeah, I mean, it's, just, it's a similar thing, but 
so something changes, but there's always something else. Yes. So the and then deeper than that, that what there what there always is is an emptiness or awareness, right? As well, even awareness out. is conditioned. Right. <laughs> even awareness it, is conditioned. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 So y- y- it is a kind of a relationship, the relationship of wonder to impermanence. It's a, it's a more skillful relationship than that of uh, hating it or wanting to control things or fix things or try to stop the impermanence. And yet it is, it is, a, it is a relationship. It's also a conditioned relationship. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's a useful one potentially to pick up and, and say, can I potentially have a sense of curiosity or wonder around this changing experience? And yet um, there are times when kind of in our practice what's asking to be uncovered is the way that we're reacting to the impermanence. And so if you're, if we're, if we're you know, if what's actually being touched is this sense of, a feeling of oppressiveness, to try to convert that into wonder is, is not really meeting what's actually happening. And, and one of the, the deepest truths, I think, that, and this is hard for us to really grok, what the absence of suffering is. You know, the Buddha pointed to that freedom of the third noble truth as being the absence of something, the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion, in the space of that absence, there's room for a lot of conditioned experience that doesn't have that in there. But it, it's not like that freedom is defined by any one thing. So it might seem like wonder sometimes. It might seem like just pure equanimity. It might feel like love. It might feel like compassion. So that that that, that you know, that when the heart is free from greed, aversion, and delusion, you know, that's the freedom. Having something else is not what the Buddha pointed to. You know, it's, it's, so it's a real radical understanding about what, what that freedom is. We, our, our usual way of dealing with things or thinking about things is like, oh, when that goes away, this will be here. Or, you know, so something else will be here. And, oh, that's when I'm going to be happy, when I always have wonder or whatever. You know, so, so that, 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 again, that's kind of clinging to, even clinging to wholesomeness, the Buddha pointed to, even clinging to the Dharma, even clinging to truth is not helpful. Yeah, so thank you for that because I, I was trying to point to that. I would just call it a blank or a gap. Uh-huh. Yeah. At least that was my And and in that there's room for a lot. Right. And and what's so amazing is like the, the, the movements of greed, aversion and delusion have so taken over our minds mostly that that we um we don't really see or, or when we are when we are acting from those places, you know, we don't really see what it would be to not have those kinds of qualities in our mind. You know, it's like well, if I don't have um, greed or if I don't, you know, if wanting is not present, why would I do anything? And so the, the, the view of wanting is not only that having things make me happy, but that's the only way, you know, that you have to act on greed. You have to act on me in order to be happy. And, and so the, the view of greed does not fathom 
the absence of greed. <laughs> it cannot fathom the absence of itself. And so it's, it's confused. It's got, it's got that delusion. And it can't fathom what it would be, what, what action would, would, how action would come. And so the, the absence of those, it's a leap of faith in a way to, to shift in the direction of the absence of, of exploring what does it mean to let go of greed, aversion, and delusion? And what's the possibility for how what happens then? And then there's, there are other things that are conditioned, but we then, then we tend to want to cling to those. It's like, oh, I figured it out. Oh, compassion, that's the key. Oh, I'm going to cling to compassion. Uh, and there's going to be suffering around that then. And yet, you know, we do these things. It's like, um, in some ways, the wholesome qualities of mind, of love, of compassion, of wonder, of curiosity, of equanimity, of delight, of mindfulness, all of those things, all of those formations, those are also formations, all of those formations um, help us to let go of the dependence on the views of greed and aversion and delusion. And so it's kind of like, okay, we can... Oh yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I practice this mindfulness. I'm gonna cling to this mindfulness. Not not you know necessarily thinking this way, but just that there is some clinging to it because it's so helpful in helping me let go of of this other stuff. And you know, states of concentration also beautiful states of ease and peace and delight and bliss. You know, really gives you a taste of something different helping us to let go of the dependence on greed, aversion, and delusion. And yet then, because it's the nature of our mind, we tend to then cling to those things. And then we do experience the suffering of that clinging. And so we usually can't jump over and just say, oh, I'm not going to cling to concentration. I'm not going to cling to equanimity or, or delight or joy. We do that. But at some point when the, when the grosser kinds of reactivity have left the the you know the, the the hatred and the and the the fear and the um the 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 pride and the arrogance when then that kind of weakens then that obvious level of suffering goes away and then we start to be able to see a kind of a suffering that comes with clinging to a state of meditation or or clinging to a view around, oh, compassion, that's where it's at. The Buddha pointed to clinging to anything is going to cause suffering. Even the truth. Even the Dharma. That's where it's at today. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm experiencing as a useful exploration today, perhaps. yeah. And so even clinging to wholesome states, we need to look at at some point. And again, the, the view of clinging is if I didn't want this to happen or I didn't, didn't want a wholesome state, why would I do anything? We can talk about that some next time. It's time to stop. <laughs> it's time to stop. So thank you for your attention.